All right, well, good morning, Veritas. My name is Brian. I'm glad to be with you to teach God's Word today. Go ahead and open your Bibles to Genesis 6. We're going to continue our study of the book of Genesis. Now, if you were here last week, we learned from Ryan that the sin that had entered the world with Adam and Eve continues on with Cain. It is, you could say, almost flourishing without restraint when we get to Genesis 6. I think the words Ryan used last week, it's running rampant, right? Like there's no check on evil and corruption in the world at this point. Probably shouldn't be all that surprising. We read in Romans 1, Paul says that you'll encounter inventors of evil. Like literally people that that kind of think up new ways to rebel against God. Kind of a scary thing to think about. Kind of an accurate description of our world today, though. When you you look at some of the headlines or you read the news articles, you watch a news show, and sometimes you just stop and you think, man, I never thought that would be a headline that I would read. Or you can just go to work, go to your neighborhood, go to your child's sporting events, and increasingly it feels like you're the minority if you follow Jesus Christ, sort of pushed to the fringes of culture, I won't say that the hostility toward God is at an all-time high. We've learned that, right, throughout the book of Genesis, that it's probably not. But it can seem like the hostility toward you if you're following Jesus Christ is just kind of like a pressure that keeps squeezing in on you, you know? You feel lonely, discouraged, outnumbered at times, overwhelmed. And this is what the people of Noah's day felt as well. Noah certainly felt like this. The good news, as we learned last week from Ryan, is that we're never without hope. Right? We, we, we talk about this at Veritas a lot. We say, if you're a Christian, your best days are always ahead of you. You're, there's always something to look forward to if you're a Christian. But let's face it, when it comes to the practical nature of living this out, there's a lot of ways that you could be tempted to respond to the overwhelming nature of what's going around you. Sometimes you just want to withdraw from the culture. Like, I'm, I'm not going to be a part of the culture. That's the solution. Or you're consumed with fear and you just hide from the culture. You may fight back, literally, like verbally and physically, fight back against the hostility toward you if you're a Christ follower, or even blend in. But you know that genuine Christ followers don't consider those options, right? So how are we to respond? What does it look like practically to live out this hope that we have in God? What's going to keep you going as a Christian when the times are discouraging and the hostility and the evil seem overwhelming? Well, the big idea for today is that it's not what you see, it's what you trust in that will keep you going. It's not what you see, it's what you trust in that will keep you going. As a Christian, relying on what you can see, it's never going to sustain your hope, right? Because you're going to look out into the world and you're going to see some pretty deplorable things, some pretty discouraging things. Or you look out in the world and you don't see all the ways that God is working amidst your circumstances. So let's, let's just illustrate this. I'm going to try to channel my inner Mark Errant. Um, none of us at Veritas will ever have illustrations on power with Mark, so, so don't hold me to that standard, but, but let's see if we can illustrate this a little bit. So I've got a beaker here filled with water, and if you have problems seeing, I'm going to rely on some of my eyewitnesses up front here, okay? Cole, you paying attention? Okay. So a beaker filled with water, and I'm just going to put this stir stick, this is a glass stir stick into it. Caroline, you're up front, can you see that? 
Okay, you can see it, most of you guys, you can see the stir stick moving around in there, right? That's how most of us operate. We have to see it to believe it, right? We have to see it to believe it. But what happens if we take a, a beaker filled with canola oil? Okay, Caroline, what do you see? We can see some bubbles. We cannot see the stick, though. And most of you believe that it's still there, even though you can't see it. That's how we need to live as Christians. We can't live by the motto, I've got to see it to believe it. That will not sustain us amidst our world today. Now, this morning, we're going to look at the life of Noah and learn four very practical ways that we can sort of live in step with this hope that Ryan talked about last week. We also learned from Ryan that in Genesis 6, 5, there's a comparison that's starting to take place. It's between Noah and the rest of the world. Uh, the rest of the world is, is described as wicked, corrupt, and evil. We're going to pick it up in Genesis 6, verses 8 and 9, and see how Noah is described. So Genesis 6, 8. Noah, however, that is in comparison to his contemporaries, he found favor with God. These are the family records of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among his contemporaries. Noah walked with God. So first, Noah is described as a righteous man. Certainly not sinless. That's not what that means. But he sought to conform to God's standards throughout his life. He didn't set his own standards and try to conform to those. And then he's described as blameless among his contemporaries. So by this righteous life that he lived, there was a difference. You looked at Noah and you looked at the rest and you saw a difference. He set himself apart. And to be blameless doesn't mean perfection either, but it does mean that his contemporaries couldn't point a finger at him and sort of criticize him and say, yeah, see, you're willfully rebelling against God too. They couldn't do that. And then we see that beautiful phrase, Noah walked with God. There was a closeness to their relationship a certain level of intimacy, a depth to their relationship. So number one, to live out our hope, walk with God. To live out our hope, walk with God. And you might say, well, that's me too. I mean, I, I believe in God. I'm the same as Noah. And you have to realize that there's a big difference between walking with God and then having some kind of shallow association with God. James says this in the second chapter of his letter. He says, well, even the demons believe in one God. Even the demons don't believe in multiple gods. They know there's one true God, but they're not walking with God. Jesus in Matthew 7 gives us some pretty scary words. He says, there's going to be people who call me master. Lord, Lord. They verbally profess. They say, Jesus is my master. And when all is said and done, Jesus looks at them and he says, I never knew you. They didn't walk with God. You know, my wife and I, we recently celebrated our 10th anniversary. And uh, so people have asked us, you know, how have the first 10 years of marriage been? You know, what's it like? And what if answering that, I just went, here you go. Well, what's that? Oh, that's our marriage certificate. No, I didn't ask you if there was a formal obligation between you. I asked you how your relationship is. When you walk with somebody, there's vulnerability, right? My wife and I, we know our fears 
We know each other's dreams and hopes and unanswered prayers. and We know our greatest sin struggles. That's what Noah had with God. There was an intimacy that, that it just cultivated this deep, deep connection between the two, as we'll find out. Now, if I looked up right now, there might be somebody rolling their eyes saying, oh, he's about to tell us to read our Bibles. Sort of. I'm going I'm to give you a little nuance because the more specific an application is, the more likely you are to do it. So here, here's what I would say. Starting this week, and do this every week, go on a walk and listen to Psalm 119. Go on a walk and listen to Psalm 119. I say listen because in a relationship, two people talk to each other, right? You spend a lot of time with each other. This isn't a book written by an author who's been dead for 200 years, right? This is written by God. This is the voice of God, the words of God, and he is alive, and we need to hear him. And I say Psalm 119 because somebody in my connection group calls this psalm the me and you psalm. The me and you psalm. It's this interchange between the psalmist and God back and forth. Let me just read you a couple verses. Teach me, Lord, the meaning of your statutes, and I'll always keep them. Help me understand your instruction, and I'll always obey it and follow it with all my heart. Help me stay on the path of your commands, for I take pleasure in it. Turn my heart toward your decrees and not to dishonest profit. Turn my eyes away from looking at what is worthless. Give me life in your ways. Walk with God. Let's go to verse 11. Genesis 6, we'll go 11 through 13. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. The earth was filled with wickedness. God saw how corrupt the earth was. For every creature had corrupted its way in the earth. Then God said to Noah, I've decided to put an end to every creature, for the earth is filled with wickedness because of them. Therefore, I'm going to destroy them along with the earth. Then Noah gives some very specific instructions to Noah to build an ark. We'll pick it up in verse 17. Understand that I'm bringing a flood, flood waters on the earth to destroy every creature under heaven with the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish, but I will establish my covenant with you. You will enter the ark with your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives. And then finish with verse 22. And Noah did this. He did everything that God had commanded. So verse 11, we learn that there's nothing but wickedness on the earth outside of Noah and his family. And this harkens back to Genesis 1. Right? Genesis 1, God said, fill the earth and subdue it. Here he says, well, the earth, yeah, it's been filled, but it's been filled with evil and corruption. In Genesis 1.31, God's done with creation, and there's sort of this, kind of this sigh of great satisfaction. And he looks out and says, God saw, and it was very good. And our verses that we just read says, God saw, and he saw that it was evil and corrupt. So people have destroyed themselves in creation, so God is going to destroy them. We learn in verse 17, he's going to do it by way of a flood. There's a lot of reasons to think that this was a worldwide flood, uh, we can't go into all those reasons right now, but he does say, I'm going to destroy every creature with the breath of life in it. it. It might seem harsh, but make sure you don't miss God's patience and forbearance in there. It's not like the people alive at Noah's time were born into this world and God just flicked them off the face of the earth. Right? They had time to repent. There was a long period of forbearance, and they refused to turn to God in obedience 
And then we see in verse 18 that God is going to establish a covenant. So a covenant is a binding agreement between two individuals. God makes the covenant with Noah, so there will be some stipulations for Noah to follow. He's got to act out in faith. He's got to build an ark, and he's got to step into the ark. And we see in verse 22 that Noah obeys. Every bit of God's commands, he obeys. Now put yourself in Noah's shoes for just a minute. Put on your rational thinking cap. Okay? What would Noah be thinking right now? You might want to have a conversation with God, you know, and say, um, God, I don't know if you noticed, but we're in the middle of a desert right now, and you want me to build what? Um, it doesn't exactly rain here. In fact, it's never rained here. And you say, what's going to come? This was a confusing time for Noah, probably really discouraging as well. Um, certainly a difficult time for him to navigate, but... He doesn't let that prevent him from obeying God. So number two, to live out your hope, obey even when there is no proof. Obey even when there is no proof. Hebrews 11.1 1 defines faith like this. Now faith is the reality of what is hoped for and the proof of what is not seen. We don't have to have visible proof to be faithful Christ followers. It's what we trust in. It's God's promises. God promises Noah, you build an ark, you step into it, I will deliver you. It's not what we see that's going to keep us going. It's interesting because six verses later in Hebrews 11, we get some commentary about Noah. In verse 7, by faith Noah, after he was warned about what? What was not yet seen. And motivated by godly fear, he built an ark to deliver his family. We need to obey even when there is no proof. If, if you don't know, Veritas, about the Bodine family, I want to talk about them for a minute. Um, Eric and Holly Bodine, they've been with Veritas since the very beginning. Eric is one of our church elders, and Eric and Holly have led connection groups since the beginning. And um, a little over a decade ago, they were living in Ames with a nice life, and there was this crazy guy named Mark Arendt who had this harebrained idea to plant a church in Iowa City. And Eric and Holly decided to step out in faith and be a part of planting Veritas Church. Their fourth child had just been born. They sell their house. Uh, Eric quits his job before having a job in Iowa City. And people start to get a little skeptical, right? Friends, neighbors, family, coworkers. Uh, how are you going to provide for your family, Eric? Um, no guarantee that this church is going to succeed. You quit your job. You don't have another job yet. And on top of that, they lost half of their possessions to mold during the moving process. Uh, they had a buyer um, back out of their house in Ames after they had moved out of it. And as we said, there's no guarantee that this new church is going to succeed. And people said things like, these are quotes, Iowa City is the place churches go to die. Iowa City is the devil's lair. Eric and Holly maintained that God provided every step of the way for them. And they said that, this may describe it best, they said there's nothing better to be a part of than God growing his church. And Eric specifically cited one of God's promises that led them. Jesus says, the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. That's a promise. It was what Eric and Holly trusted in, not what they could see and look around, Veritas. Hundreds, 
Probably when all is said and done, there will be thousands of people that God will bring into his kingdom through this church. Because people live by what they trust in and not what they can see. So a question for us when it comes to application. Where in your life are you waiting to see the whole picture before you act? Where in your life are you waiting to see the whole picture before you obey God? You know, is it a job choice? Maybe it's a church plant? Maybe it's overseas missions? Getting married, having kids? Maybe using your spiritual gifts in this church? Maybe it's just being known in this church. Not being the last one to come in and the first one to leave, but getting into a discipleship context and getting connected to brothers and sisters in Christ. It's what we trust in. Noah trusted in God's promises. It's not what we see that's going to keep us going. Now, while it's true that there was very little visible hope visible for Noah to obey God, there was also something else going on at the time of building the ark. Um, and, and to really understand Noah's life, you have to understand how ridiculous this would have looked to everybody else around, right? Can you imagine the scene? Did you guys see what Noah's doing? I can't believe this. What a moron. We're in the middle of a desert. Doesn't rain here? He's building an ark and he says a flood's going to kill us. The mocking, the ridicule, the finger pointing, it didn't faze Noah. He obeyed in the face of persecution. He was bold. So number three, to live out our hope, obey even when obeying means persecution. Obey even when obeying means persecution. If we live by what we trust in and not what we see, we will get mocked and made fun of. Jesus promised us that one. Our, our, our role is to step out in boldness and to look different from the culture around us. Remember, Noah was set apart from his contemporaries. Some of you guys know that I love to follow nature Instagram accounts, and much to my wife's chagrin, usually it's animals fighting. It's like lions and hyenas eating each other up, and me and my kids will watch them, and I'm like, Carrie, what? It's just nature. I'm just teaching my kids nature, right? But I found this picture last week. Throw that first picture up there. And the caption for this picture was, spot the snake. Spot the snake. Put up a hand if you, if you can spot the snake. Okay? Yeah, last service we had about 1% of people that said they found it. Okay? I'm not lying. It's up there. Put up the second picture. You guys see it now? Now, what, what would it look like if we played the game, spot the Christian in our culture? What if we look like if we just went to our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in our homes, in our social activities, we said, pick out the Christian. My fear is that it would be a lot like that in many cases. What would it look like for you to live the kind of life that forced people to say, either she's a fool or she knows something I don't. Either she's a fool or she knows something I don't. What would you stop doing or what would you start doing if you didn't care so much about what other people thought about you? 
Let's get real and let's get personal here. I want to talk to younger people first, middle school, high school, college. I know for a fact that it is not cool to not have sex before you get married. You get made fun of and you get called a fool and an idiot and a moron. Why would you live like that? It's so good. Just do it. Everybody else is. And you get cast away if you don't want to take part in that. Young people, you will never regret fighting for your purity and maintaining your purity. You will regret sacrificing in that area. You'll regret it big time. Don't worry about what other people are saying. Parents, let's talk lifestyle creep, right? Keeping up with the Joneses. What are they going to think if I don't have this car and these clothes and that vacation and my kids aren't in this? How's that going to affect my image? How's that going to affect my reputation? None of that stuff is inherently evil. But when our motivation is, what will they think if I don't do X, Y, and Z? What will they think if I don't have X, Y, and Z? That starts to squeeze God out. What about relationships? What what would it look like to show hospitality to outcasts and sinners? Not just invite people into our homes that are like us. But people like the ones Jesus got made fun of for hanging out with. How about just professing our verbal allegiance to God? When your friend says, hey, why don't you have sex? "Uh, Just not ready yet. I'll get to it, you know. Or why don't you have sex? Because I follow Jesus. That's why. And that means something. Listen, I've been called a fool many times for boldly sharing the gospel, but you know what's true? For every one time that happens, I chicken out three times. That's the truth. The goal is not perfection, right? Noah was not described as perfect. He was described as blameless. Veritas, let's obey even when it means persecution. All right, let's continue in Genesis 7. We're going to kind of skip some verses along the way, so so try and keep up. The verses will be on the screen if you need them. Starting in in chapter 7, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Noah, Enter the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you alone are righteous before me in this generation. And then verse 5, a familiar sounding verse. And Noah did everything that the Lord commanded him. So the flood is ongoing, and we'll pick it up in chapter 8, verse 1. God remembered Noah as well as all the wildlife and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. God caused a wind, that word wind, it's the same word used for Holy Spirit in Genesis 1-2. He caused a wind to pass over the earth, and the water began to subside. So the flood is receding, and then we'll go 15 through 19. Then God spoke to Noah, come out of the ark, you, your wife, your sons, and your sons' wives with you. Bring out all the living creatures that are with you, birds, livestock, those that crawl on the earth, and they will spread over the earth And be fruitful and multiply on the earth. The creation mandate is still in effect. So Noah, along with his sons, his wife, and his sons' wives, came out. All the animals, all the creatures that crawl, and all the flying creatures, everything that moves on the earth came out of the ark by their families. Now, just pause and think about how much time has passed between when the initial command is given to when they're actually delivered and get out of the ark. Okay, so first thing, he's got to go chop the wood down, right? 
We're not talking twigs. We're talking massive, massive planks of wood to build this ark. He's got to haul them to the building site. He's actually got to put the ark together, which would have just been an engineering nightmare, right? Especially back in that day. He's got to gather all the food for the animals. And we know for a fact, because the Bible tells us that they were in the ark for over a year. Over a year. Guys, we often want God to work on a much faster timeline, right? Minutes, hours, days. That's our timeline for God. Number four, last one, to live out our hope. Obey even when you have to wait. Obey even when you have to wait. Veritas, we have to resist the urge to grasp for control. Or you might say perceived control. Because we're never really in control. Resist the urge to try and take things into your own hands in a given situation. You know, I love watching movies based on true stories. One of my favorite is The Great Escape. And it's a story about a, a German prisoner of war camp during World War II. And it was supposedly supposed to be inescapable. It was impossible to escape from the Germans' thought. That's why they built it. And so what they did was they sort of put all their bad eggs in one basket. They took commanding officers from the British Army, the American Army, the Australian Army, all the allies, put them all in the same camp. Well, the problem was you had a lot of brain power together in one camp. And so they got together and they orchestrated the most meticulous and well-planned escape ever. Okay? They were supposed to get well over 250 guys out of this camp. I mean, they had the passports. They had the train passes. They learned the German language. They sewed German uniforms together. I mean, they covered all their bases. They even had three tunnels. They called them Tom, Dick, and Harry. The Germans found one, they'd use another one. So it comes time for the night of the escape, and the only part of the tunnel they hadn't dug was just a little bit to get through the surface on ground level. So they dig through, they get to the surface on ground level, and they notice they've made a serious miscalculation. The tunnel was supposed to end in a wooded area, so the Germans couldn't see them running out. But it was quite a bit short of that wooded area. So they send a guy out, and they have him tie a rope around a tree, run along the ground down to the tunnel. When the German officer is far enough away, you get a tug on the rope, and you know it's your turn to go out of the tunnel. Coast is clear. So they're getting guy after guy after guy out, and eventually one of the German officers, he just stops, and he kind of lingers around where the hole is. And he lights a cigarette, and he just kind of walks around, pacing back and forth, looking up at the stars in the sky. And the guy in the tunnel's getting nervous. He's like, man, I need to get out of this camp. Why isn't the tug on the rope coming? More time passes, more time passes. He says, you know what? Forget it. I'm going. Goes out of the tunnel, takes things into his own hands. He trips, he falls on his package. The German officer sees it, sounds the alarm. He's supposed to get over 250 guys out. Two ended up escaping. The rest were executed or recaptured. When you take things into your own hands, disaster results. And it's not that different for our lives, guys. When we don't want to wait and just obey God, we want to take things into our own, own hands, nothing good results when we do that. Nothing good results. And thank God for Noah's patience. Remember in Genesis 3, we talked about God was going to send this guy to crush the serpent, put an end to death and evil? Jesus Christ, yeah, he comes through the line of Noah. God works out his plan of redemption through Noah. Imagine if he took things into his own hands. So a question for us. Where in your life does God have you in a period of waiting? 
You know, where in your life does God have you in a period of waiting? Think about that, and then think about this. When you're in a time like that, the goal is not to predict the future, right? We love to try and do that, right? The goal is to figure out what's the next step of obedience God wants me to take. What is the next, just, just the next step, not the next 10, it's what's the next step of obedience God wants me to take. And how do we figure that out? We listen, right? We listen to what he says in his word. We ask him in prayer and we listen. And the Holy Spirit tells us. You know, it, it's true that this story about Noah is a story of hope. We often talk about the animals and the rainbows, right? Kids' toys and paintings on kids' classrooms. But if you were in the early stages of the flood, sitting on the bottom of this ark, probably really dark, you would have heard echoes of human corpses bouncing off the sides of the ark. Thousands of them. It's the story of God's judgment against sin as well. Jesus gives us some commentary on this part of it in Matthew 24. He says, oh yeah, you know, back in Noah's day, you know what they were doing when the flood came? They were living life as normal, not a care in the world. They were having parties, they were going to work, having meals with each other, getting married, giving each other in marriage, and it was a total shock, and they were all destroyed, except for Noah and his family. And then Jesus says, it's gonna be the same when I come back. People are gonna be living life as normal. They're gonna have discarded me. Not taking me seriously. And it's gonna be a total surprise when I come back. And I'm gonna to come to judge. Now, good news comes as we get more commentary on this story from Peter. Right? First Peter 3, what does Peter liken the flood to? He likens it to baptism. And he says, as Noah and his family, by faith, they stepped into the ark and they were delivered by God from the waters through the waters. We are to step into Christ and be delivered by the finished work of Jesus Christ. And that's symbolized by the waters of baptism. That is a visible sign baptism of our appeal to God. God, cleanse my conscience. Declare me innocent. Nothing because of what I've done, but because of what you've done through Jesus Christ on my behalf. That's a free offer to anyone. It's a gift to be received. Noah just had to step into the ark. God shut him in, it says, protected him and saved him. You acknowledge what the people in Noah's day didn't. On my own, I produce nothing but evil and wickedness. That's a sobering confession to make, but it's true. My only hope is to appeal to the mercy of God. Please accept that offer. That's what Peter says in verse 3. He says, this is, this is the appeal, right, you're making in baptism. God have mercy on me. The appeal we're making today is just receive the gift and open it. That's all. Man, on the other side of that gift, it's freedom and it's joy and it's peace and it's certainty and it's hope. There's always optimism for the future. Accept that offer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for revealing, first of all, yourself 
through this story, that you are a God who is slow to anger, and you are patient. But thank you that you are a God who does deal with evil and sin, and you don't let it go unchecked. Help us, Lord, as a church to walk with you, to have a, a, a teach us. We're your students. Teach us how to have a depth to our relationship, a deep bond with you, Lord, and then help us to obey, no matter what it might mean, no matter if we can't see the proof, we don't know what you're doing, people are mocking us, we have to wait. Help us to be obedient to you, Lord. And I pray this through Jesus' name, amen.